Well, good morning, everyone. So great to see you all. You're all so quiet with your masks on. <laughs> what a blessing to meet together. I do have several announcements today. Uh, we will be having communion toward the end of the service. So uh, the first Sunday of the month, we typically will have communion. So uh, anyone who's a Christian, you are welcome and invited to come forward. And what we'll do is I will invite you forward and you'll take of the cup and the bread, which uh, is gluten-free at this juncture and a bit crunchy. Um, and then there are some in the other room as well, if uh, you're in the foyer. And so then, then uh, you can take it back to your seats and we'll pray together. I'll lead everyone in a prayer. Um, yeah, it's a great time to proclaim the death of our Savior till he comes, that demonstration of his love that he has poured out upon us. Um, next week, we will have a quarterly meeting. So after the church service, probably 20, 30 minutes after, we'll reconvene in here and discuss what's going on in the fellowship and with an eye looking forward. And then the following week, which I think is 21 uh, November, there will be a barbecue following the fellowship. So after church, stick around. We'll have a barbecue and feel free to bring uh, sides and drinks and desserts. And we will uh, enjoy that time together. So everyone's welcome for that. Looking forward to it. Those who have experienced this in the past, have, they can tell you that it's been great. So... Looking forward to that. We'll be in Job chapter 17 today, if you want to turn there. And let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us, for your grace, your mercy, for this book that you have given us, for the wisdom that's contained in the scriptures, and for your faithfulness to us all. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for him laying down his life as a sacrifice for sinners, that we could be born again, that we could be made children of God through the gospel. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here today, those watching online. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit and give us understanding of your truth and that it would hit home. It would make a difference in everyone from young to old, that we would all receive what you would have, that we would be humble and contrite before you with hearts of uh, repentance and rejoicing in what you've accomplished. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us all and for the rain, for this beautiful land that you've given us, for the body of Christ of which we are part through Jesus. And we thank you that he is the head and we look to him in Jesus' name. Amen. When you apply for a job, we know how important it is to have someone to vouch for you. Uh, Employers want to know from someone other than the applicant about someone's qualifications for a role, their experience, their quality of character, uh, their suitability for the role, because I had a friend who would always say, I'm the best, just ask me. So that's probably not who you want to go to to get the real skinny on how they are, uh, but to have someone vouch for you even within the organization you're applying for, that's even better. If you can have someone that's already respected who can vouch for you and say, this guy, he's solid. She really gets the job done. That goes a long way um, 
Same thing when you have, let's say, poor credit or you need a loan. If you have someone who's willing to co-sign for you, you have access to loans and to, to funds that would not be available to you because they are willing to sign their name and say, I'm going to put down a pledge that if they're not able to pay, I will and I have the means. And so the, the lending institution will say, okay, because they're willing to vouch for you, they're going to put down that pledge, they're going to sign their name as a responsible party, then we will give that loan. Job wanted someone to vouch for him. He wanted God to vouch for him. And we're drawing to the, near to the midpoint of the book of Job. And this discussion between him and his friends is continuing. And his friends are accusing him of sin and saying what he needs to do to get out of this situation. And he's justifying himself saying, well, I'm not guilty of what you're accusing me without evidence. And in God's wisdom, God allowed the book of Job to be long. He could have just given us a few dot points, the highlights of what was going on. But no, he lets us read through the wranglings of a man who's struggling, who's suffering, and his friends who are not being compassionate towards him at all, who are really accusing him of sin. This shows us that God allows trouble. He allows struggles to last. We want them to be over quickly. Job, he's wrestling why God had allowed this trouble. But this book shows us that trials can be prolonged. Things can be extended long more than we're comfortable, much more than we're comfortable. And uh, by his grace, he is sufficient. In the end, we know he brings blessing. He will provide for us. And we can have unanswered questions. We can wonder why we're having to suffer this trial. But in looking to the Lord, we find answers. We can count on God's constant help, his faithfulness, his blessing in the end, not because we're deserving, but because he's good, because he's merciful and gracious. So Job continues in Job 17, verse one, my spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Are not mockers with me? And does not my eye dwell on their provocation? Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? For you have hidden their heart from understanding. Therefore, you will not exalt them. He who speaks flattery to his friends, even the eyes of his children will fail. Job was a broken man. This trial had just broken him down. Based upon what he could see and how he felt, there was no spark of hope of better days. His days on earth, they were drawing to a close. He felt exhausted. The grave seemed... uh, ready to receive him. And and it was a welcome thought. If only it meant a respite from his suffering. He's conflicted because he feels mocked and scorned by his friends that he expected would support him and encourage him. It'd be one thing if they were his enemies who were attacking him, but they were his friends. And he had this expectation, like you should have my back. You should be gentle towards those who are suffering. But instead you have these harsh words. Why are you treating me like an enemy because I'm suffering at the hand of God? And he had been assumed guilty without evidence, condemned out of ignorance. Now in our justice system, if someone's arrested, they can be given the opportunity to post bail and to go free because our system is based upon the presumption of innocence until proven guilty, until you see your day in court and the evidence is presented. And he's facing this terrible trial 
And he's asking God post bail for me, put down a pledge for me because you have my back. Get me out of this difficult situation because there's no one else I can count on to help me. There's no one else who has my side, who really cares about how I'm feeling. He says, give me the NIV. It brings out this meaning a bit more clearly in verse three. It says, give me, O God, the pledge you demand. Who else will put up security for me? His friends were not helping. They were not offering support. He's not asking for money. He says, pledge for me with yourself. He's saying, God, I want you to vouch for me. I want you to give yourself for me. This made me think about the Samaritan and the parable Jesus told where this man, he was going the road to Jericho and was beaten up by thieves who left him for dead, took all his stuff. And it says a priest saw him and walked by on the other side. A Levite saw him walk by on the other side, but the Samaritan had compassion on him. And he went to him, he poured on oil and wine, and he took this wounded man to an innkeeper and said, here's the money for his stay. And if you need anything more to nurse him back to health, I will pay for it upon my return. So he is pledging. He is saying, I will pay for anything this guy needs to be made well again. And I'm going to come back. And his word was good. The innkeeper took him at his word. Job wanted God to pledge for him. Like I'm the one by the side of the road, sitting in dust and ashes. People are walking by me, scorning me, spitting on me. God, will you vouch for me? Will you pledge for my godly character? And in his grief, he still maintained his faith in God and God's sovereignty. He attributed the blindness of his friends and their lack of compassion as God's doing that God had done this for reasons unknown to him. He had suffered loss. God had moved them to unleash these accusations against him. He reminds me of King David. Remember when he was leaving Jerusalem, when Absalom, his son was seeking to usurp the throne and overthrow him and to avoid bloodshed. David decided instead of defending the palace to leave. So he left 10 concubines to keep the house He sent the Ark of the Covenant back to the temple or the tabernacle at that time. And then he left. And as he left, there was this Benjamite named Shimei who was accusing him of being bloodthirsty when he's trying to prevent the shedding of blood. And he's saying, come out, you wicked man. And he's throwing dust at him and he's cursing at him and yelling. And uh, one of David's men, Abishai, he asked for permission. Can I please remove his head? And this is what David said in 2 Samuel 16, 10 through 12. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? Let him curse because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, see how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more may now this Benjamite let him alone and let him curse for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. When David was accused and vilified, when Job was accused of sin by his friends, they threw themselves on the mercy of God. They didn't see themselves at the mercy of the wicked. And we can make that mistake. We can see the trouble in the world. We can feel the pain. And we say, I am at the mercy of this illness. I'm at the mercy of this culture. I'm at the mercy of the sway of Satan in the world. 
David did not have a perspective in that moment when he was being cursed. Job, he said, the Lord is doing this. They saw the Lord as he truly is. We call him the Lord, but if he's the Lord, that means he is sovereign and rules over all. He is the greatest. He has all power at his command. He does everything. There's nothing that happens that he is not aware of. And they refused to charge God with wrong because they didn't understand why they suffered. They saw him as the self-existent God who held their breath in his hands. So who were they to question him? The greatest man, once the greatest man of the East, David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, not charging God with wrong for what he had allowed to befall them. So Job's like, I'm not going to flatter you guys by accepting your counsel. Uh, You're condemning whom God has not. Continuing in verse six, but he has made me a byword of the people. I have become one in whose face men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of sorrow and all my members are like shadows. Upright men are astonished at this and the innocent stirs himself up against the hypocrite. Yet the righteous will hold to his way and he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. But please come back again, all of you, for I shall not find one wise man among you. Job nor his friends held back. God who kept his friends from understanding also caused Job to be ridiculed and shamed. And think of it, you're suffering and someone's spitting in your face because you're suffering. It's unthinkable, right? But that's what was happening to Job. And I admire that he's crediting God for the source of his pain, but not charging God with wrong. He held fast to his integrity that God is good. God is worthy of worship and to be trusted. Even when I don't understand what he's doing. His eyes are blurred with tears and with the spit of other people. I mean, it's hard to imagine. He's holding fast to the Lord. Upright people who feared God, they were astonished when they heard of what happened to Job. Like, what? That's happened to him? He's a godly, upright man. Or is he? And his friends, they were certain he was not because of how he suffered. The accusations of Job's friends, they really said more about them than they did about Job. Just like Eliab. Do you remember Eliab, the brother of David? Three of David's eldest brothers, they had gone up to battle. The sons of Jesse and under the command of King Saul. They were going to fight the Philistines. And David was the youngest son of Jesse, who typically was watching the sheep. And he was directed by his father to go to the the, the 10 captains and bring these 10 cheeses. I'm like, that's an interesting thing to bring to war. Okay. Different kind of warfare than I'm perhaps envisioning, but he's bringing these cheeses to the commanders. He's going to obtain a report and find out how the battle's going. So as David obeys his father and he goes to the battle, he sees this giant Philistine come out and start cursing the armies of the living God and defying God. And he's like, what will be done to the, the man who defeats this Philistine? But every time Goliath would come out, it said that the, all the men of Israel, that includes David's three brothers, all of them fled like Goliath's there. And they just like took off, hid somewhere. Well, he's like, you know, come out and fight me. You know, is there anyone among you who can fight? Turn with me to 1 Samuel 17, 28 to see how Eliab responded to, 
when he heard David's words. 1 Samuel 17, verse 28. This is what happened. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard what when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was aroused against David. And he said, why did you come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Is there not a cause? Then he turned from him toward another and said the same thing. And these people answered him as the first ones did. By faith in God and obedience to, so he was obedient to his father, Jesse. And then he had faith in God. And he showed courage that every man of Israel lacked, Eliab included. He slandered David's motives for even going to the battle. He mocked his job of being a shepherd over those few sheep in the wilderness. He accuses him of pride, wickedness, and rottenness. All from the mouth of a man rejected by God for the very same reasons. God had refused him. He was the first one that Samuel's like, oh, he has a royal bearing. No, no, I've refused him. Isn't, don't you have another son, Jesse? David was the one anointed. David's cause was right before the Lord. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't explain everything or feel like he needs to justify his behavior. It says he turned from him and he continued to say the same thing. He went to someone else and said, who's going to stand up against this Philistine? What will happen? The word reached the king and the king brought him before him. And we know what happens that David defeated the Philistine. It was God who defeated the Philistine. God won the victory that day. So we see the steadfastness of those who fear God, not fearing man, not fearing the elder brother who's making fun of you in front of everyone, looking to God and trusting him. In Job 17, 9, Job said, he who has clean hands will be stronger and stronger. It's like this, this burst of confidence from a man who's not feeling confident at all, where he, he's not feeling strong, but he's saying, Those who have clean hands, those who are righteous, those who are doing what's right in God's sight, they will be stronger and stronger. By God's grace, brokenness, it leads to healing, to restoration. Humility, it leads to exaltation. The sons of Korah, they wrote this blessing. They said, people are blessed who dwell in your courts. Even the birds that make their nest in your house, they are blessed in Psalm 84, 4 through 7. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, for they will still be praising you. Selah. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a spring. The rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. The picture here is these pilgrims that make these long treks to go up to Jerusalem in obedience to God to worship, to offer sacrifice. They would pass through these dry places, this valley of Baca. Baca means weeping or mourning. These low places, this sad time, this dry time that God would bring refreshment upon them. So they've been having a rough go, but as they're approaching the Lord, he brings refreshment. They go from strength to strength because their hope is in him. Those who find their strength, the Lord will be strengthened to seek him, strengthened to rejoice when... 
we look at the situation and we can't see anything good. We usually go from strength to weakness, right? We start strong, but then we fade. You guys ever done any running, racing, where you hit a wall, right? You just, you run out of energy. You're tired. It's a long day. You can just be worn out from work. You start strong, but get weak. As we trust the Lord and wait on him, our strength is renewed. He lifts us up on the wings of eagles. We may not feel strong, but you know, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness because his grace is sufficient. Job 17 verse 11. My days are past. My purposes are broken off. Even the thoughts of my heart. They change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, if I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? Job's holding fast to his integrity, but he feels like his best days are behind him. His purposes, his plans had evaporated with the loss of his livelihood and his children. I've seen, I've known people who they had a very, a great career and they decided to go into retirement and they really struggled with that transition. They struggled with the change from not having this routine, the camaraderie of the workplace this, these purposes that they're like, okay, this is, they found a lot of purpose in that, that they didn't realize they had until they left it. And then it was quite difficult for them. They struggled with mental health. And you think about what Job was going through, where he's now lost thousands of animals. He's lost all his livestock. He's, he's not a father anymore of any children that are living. He had 10, but now he has none. He had this thriving business that's gone. His health is now shot. He's in terrible straits. And, and this is affecting him. He's sorting this out. He's struggling with it. His friends, they're, they're su- suggesting that repentance will lead to restoration, but Job can't see it. He doesn't even know what to repent of. Zophar had said, if, if, if you'll put away your sin, this is in Job eleven seventeen and 18, your life will be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning and you would be secure because there's hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest in safety. And he's like, and there's really not any comfort for me in the grave either. Because even if I embrace corruption, what hope is there for me? This is a gloomy outlook of a very depressed person. He seemed beyond hope and unable to see or receive the hope that we have in Jesus. Like a heart that refused to be comforted. Continuing in Job 18 verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long till you put an end to words? Gain understanding and afterward we will speak. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or shall the rock be removed from its place? Bildad the Shuhite begins his second address of Job. As we can see, he lacks sympathy, gentleness for a broken man. Bildad says, Job, you should stop talking and start listening. Wise up, then we'll speak. 
When you're ready to listen, we've got the answers for you, Job. Why are you treating us like stupid animals when you're the one who can't see clearly? When you're the one who's scraping yourself with a pot and dust and ashes? To Bildad, Job was responsible for his condition and it fell to him to get out of it himself. Have you ever seen a dog that was on a really long lead? And like, I remember finding a dog that there was a, there was a pole been chained to this pole with a long lead and the dog just kept running around this pole until it had pretty much just tied itself to the pole and it wasn't going anywhere. It was like, (laughs) and I don't know how long the dog had been kind of struggling to stand because it had tangled itself up and you see him and you're like, what did you do? What? And it doesn't know. I've been going clockwise. I should go anti-clockwise to extricate myself, but he needed somebody to help him. And so there was this kind of like, as sheepish as a dog can look, his tail slightly wagging, just kind of looking at you going, uh, like, can you give me a hand? And so you're, you're talking to the dog and you're, you're petting it and kind of untangling it and getting it free. And all right, now don't do that again. And what happens? Happens again. The dog just doesn't understand the principle that's at work here with this thing around my neck. Job was like a dog who was all tangled up. And when his friends came near, it's like he, he snapped at them. And then he started biting his own leg. You know, he's doing damage to himself in his frustration to try to get free from it. And he's like, you got yourself into this problem, Job. It falls to you to get yourself out. And really, when we think about that, that doesn't stack up. A a sheep that falls down into a ditch, it cannot get itself out. It needs help from the shepherd. That, that argument, it does not hold water. And he's saying, do you think, Job, that you're special? That you'll be spared the negative consequences of your decisions? Like every, the world should stop for you, Job. And his refusal to admit guilt annoyed him. Bildad and his friends, they went on to make some awful er- uh, errors of judgment. They were annoyed with him because he was in a predicament. They believed they had answers and he wasn't listening to them. He wasn't taking their thoughts on board. He was rejecting their assessment of the reason for his issues. It was God who had brought the whole situation about to show the victory of faith and God's mercy and compassion. Bildad looked at Job and he sees his sackcloth. He sees his boils. He sees his dust and ashes. And he begins to rehearse everything about Job's life and how It meant that he was wicked and he was deserving of what he was enduring. Job is saying, God is afflicting me. And Bildad's like, yeah, because you're sinful. You got yourself into this mess and it falls to you to get yourself out. Can a fish free itself from a net? Can a spider extricate itself from an airtight jar? No, it will die in that jar unless someone opens it and sets it free. Job was looking to the Lord. His friends were looking at him and what he needed to do. Continuing in verse five, the light of the wicked indeed goes out and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent and his lamp beside him is put out. The steps of his strength are shortened and his own counsel casts him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. 
The net takes him by the heel and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground and a trap for him in the road. Terrors frighten him on every side and drive him to his feet. The formula for Bildad's approach to Job is very simple. Job's suffering is due to his sin. God judges sin by allowing us to reap what we have sown now and forever. It's like the wicked suffer. So if you suffer, you're wicked. It's this uh, very circular argument, which is a logical fallacy. It's beginning with the assumption of what you're trying to prove. And so he's looking at him and saying, the wicked suffer, you're suffering, so you're wicked. You're the cause of your own trouble. You've been following your own counsel. And because I am not sick, because I am not bereaved, because I have not been uh, broken, I'm the one to give you advice. You're the one to be quiet. Clearly your way, Job, it's self-destructive. You've been ensnared by illness, trapped by poverty, and caught in inescapable grief. Now, while it's true that following unwise counsel can lead to ruin, we would be foolish to forget about God's role in everything. Think about when the 10 tribes split from Judah under King Rehoboam. King Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. The people had gathered together and they said, will you go easy on us? Be a little Uh, less heavy handed than your father. And he said, my little finger will be thicker than my father's loins. So he said, no, I'm going to make your, you know, he made your life difficult. I'm going to make it miserable. And they said, okay, to your tents, O Israel. So 10 tribes left Rehoboam to consolidate and unify the kingdom. He gets his army together and God speaks to him and says, do not go up, go home. This thing is from me. Now it didn't seem to Rehoboam. It was from the Lord. But this division was of the Lord. Jesus, he went up to Jerusalem knowing he would be betrayed, knowing he would be arrested and crucified. And he would die to rise again, according to the will of the father. When Peter heard this, was he accepting? No, he said, far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, because You are an offense to me. You're mindful of the things of men and not the things of God. God's purposes, God's plans. What about those? What about those plans that you don't know anything about that God has ordained from before creation that he knew how things were going to go. It wasn't sin that had hunted down Job with these snares and traps, but it was God refining a righteous man. It was God giving us something to learn, much to learn from. Because we have all been in Bildad's shoes, whether we've said it out loud, or we've just thought it. When we see someone suffering, we can judge, we can be harsh, we can lack compassion. Bildad continues in verse 12, his strength is starved and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is uprooted from the shelter of his tent and they parade him before the king of terrors. They dwell in his tent who are none of his brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. His roots are dried out below and his branch withers above. The memory of him perishes from the earth and he has no name among the renowned. He is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. 
Bildad continues raging against the wicked here. And he says, this is how Job's situation confirms my view. He's looking at his emaciated body, the skin that's sloughing off and saying, this is what happens to the wicked man. Everyone pay attention. This is, this is a picture of the wicked. Now, in a spiritual sense, what he's saying is true in that um, we are ruined apart from Christ. We must be born again. That's the only way to forgiveness and eternal life. Um, but to judge his righteousness or his sinfulness based upon what happened to him or what God allowed was folly. It didn't take God or his purposes into account at all. Bildad asserted the wicked man would be starved, devoured, uprooted, paraded before the king of terrors, likened to a tree with dried roots and withered branches, that the sinner in his memory will perish from the earth and be driven into darkness. So, okay, this stacks up concerning the spiritual condition who die in their sins, who face eternal, eternal punishment in hell. But this was false concerning Job. This was an ignorant assumption. Bildad puts forth this notion that resembles karma, like you have good or bad luck, uh, depending on your actions. It's strictly reaping what you sow that does not take into account that God allows us to reap what we have not sown, that he has given us grace and given us righteousness by grace through faith in Jesus. For those who believe in a form of karma, the emphasis is on what you must do to atone for your debts or your bad actions, that it may be a sacrifice to a deity, to deny yourself a comfort, to punish yourself in some way, to devote yourself to doing good deeds. But Christianity is distinct from all of that because everything else places an emphasis on what you need to do to fix your problem, what you need to do to get out of the situation. Rather than putting your faith in Jesus Christ and all he has done is doing and has promised to do for you because it's all about what Jesus has done as followers of him. We look to him for strength. Jesus Christ is God made flesh, a man who suffered. He suffered. Why? He suffered because he loved because he was obedient to his father that's why he suffered, not because of his own sin. He took our sin upon himself so that we could be forgiven, so we could have eternal life with him. He provided atonement for sin. To say the martyrdom of Stephen, Peter, or Paul, or other saints was punishment for their sins, it's to deny that the hand of God allowed them the privilege to suffer shame for the sake of Christ. God's able to turn a dry and barren soul into an oasis full of life and light, not because we have done anything, but because he is good, because he has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Not one of us is worthy of forgiveness. We all deserve eternal torment, but God in his love has sent a savior to redeem us, to give us hope and eternal life through faith in him. Isn't that awesome? Job 18, verse 19, he has neither son nor posterity among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. Those in the West are astonished at his day and those in the East are frightened. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked. And this is the place of him who does not know God. Bildad really turns the knife here. In Job, seeing how he suffered 
how he had been rendered childless. He's saying that's what happens to the wicked, rendered childless, knowing what Job had suffered. And then he goes on to say, it's proof that this person does not know God. (laughs) So he's saying not only has Job suffered his loss, but he actually doesn't even know God. It's true. The wicked man will ultimately be cut off, but false to say of a man that God calls blameless and upright, one who fears God and shuns evil. That's like Job chapter one, where God gives us his assessment of Job. Very different than what Bildad, as looking at Job, came to that conclusion. Are you guilty of doing the same, brothers and sisters? God has allowed something and we pin it on that person as a lack of faith or because of their sin or for some reason. And you may not say it out loud, but you've thought it in your head. And that's something that we need to confess before the Lord. Say, Lord, I have judged. I have been presumptuous. I have assumed that I knew what you were doing when I didn't know anything. May our eyes turn to him. What seemed altogether destructive, it was working for a glorious and good purpose. Job look, Bildad looked at Job and he judged the man with what he could see with his eyes rather than seeking the Lord about what he should do or what he should say. I like this quote in the Enduring Word Commentary attributed to Mason. It says, it is not Job's wickedness, but his faithfulness to the Lord that he is disclosing through this ordeal. In fact, there may be nothing our God wants more than to bring each one of us to the point where he can do with us exactly what he did with Job, hand us over with perfect confidence into the clutches of Satan, knowing that even then our faith will hold. Isn't that the victory of our faith, the victory of our Savior? That even when the devil does his worst, our faith is strong because it rests in our Savior. He is our foundation. He is our strength. And sometimes it's not for us to know why God has allowed pain and sorrow. But in our struggle, we can know God and we can know he's there, that he sees and he hears, he cares and comforts. During Job's trial, he nor Bildad was aware of God's purposes his grace or redemptive power that he would demonstrate. They didn't know because they're in the middle of the trial. Looking back, maybe they saw some of it. I think we can see more because of what God's given us in his word. And there's still more that we can learn. Job desired that God would put down a pledge for him with himself. I like how he says that pledge with himself. And God has done that for Christians through Jesus Christ. He vouched for us, not because we're good, but because he is. He willingly provided atonement. We receive by faith in him. When we confess our sins, we repent and trust in him. We recognize I am a sinner and I don't deserve anything good from God, but God is good. And God has extended his grace to me through the gospel. And we receive that by faith. God doesn't hold a grudge against us because his own son was murdered on the cross. Because it cost him that much. He, He doesn't hold anything against us. He loves us. He knew what he would accomplish. He knew the purposes that would unfold through the, his sacrifice. 
Seeing the price that God paid to redeem us, we can know he values us. He will not forget about us. Before we receive communion together, I'd like you to please to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, starting in 1 verse 3. It's a great time to remember how Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel by his sacrifice on Calvary. Jesus suffered for us in obedience to the Father. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Let these sink into your souls. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. If Jesus didn't die, he cannot rise. If he did not die, he could not provide atonement for the sins of the world. If he didn't suffer, there would be no forgiveness. There'd be no justification. There'd be no new life where it says we've been begotten again. That's not happening except Jesus suffer and die. He went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. The redemption of lost sinners, the adoption of those chosen by him. And we can rejoice in the trial knowing that our faith, as Peter says, can praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus. It's good for us to ask ourselves, would we rather not have the trial or in the trial have faith that praises God, that glorifies him at his appearing? And to be honest, sometimes we'd say, I'd rather not have the trial I'd rather not have the pain. I would rather not suffer because I really care more about myself than Jesus if we're going to follow that through. But praise the Lord that in our suffering, in our trial, that he allows for his good purposes, we can trust him, we can have strength in him. And when we see Jesus, we will not cower before him out of fear of judgment, but rejoice in the salvation of our souls Because he has purchased us. He has redeemed us. He has loved us with an everlasting love. That blood that flowed from his head where the crown of thorns pierced him. The back that was torn open by the scourge. His hands, his feet, his side that were pierced for us. So his blood could be shed. So atonement could be provided. It satisfied the debt owed by my sin, by your sin, the sins of the world. And Jesus went to the grave. He did not see corruption, but was raised again, alive the third day. And 
we are called to remember and to proclaim his death until he comes. And Romans 5, 8, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So his death, therefore, is a proclamation of his love, a love that's to be lived out through us because of what he's accomplished by his grace. The death of Jesus, that's a pledge of God's love for you that he laid down with himself. And his resurrection proof of the atonement of your sin, if you've placed your faith in him. To know Jesus is to know the God who has begotten us again to this living hope and eternal inheritance. We are kept by the power of God by faith and bless his name forever for what he has done. So we will partake of communion shortly. If I could invite the team to come up, please. While they're playing this song, I invite you to uh, come forward and try to maintain some physical distancing as, as you can. Um, but take of the elements and head back to your seats and then I will lead us in a prayer together. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the redemptive power of Jesus Christ, that you can take what's altogether sinful and altogether rotten and really a lost cause and redeem for your glory forever to your praise, to your honor. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for the atonement. Thank you that you have provided a way for us to live with you forever, to be righteous in your sight by grace through faith and to have a relationship with you where we can say, I know God. And we look upon Jesus Christ, we are looking upon God himself. And we thank you for sending Jesus to be the savior of the world, that even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus was lifted up, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I thank you that this promise is for us, to our children, and to those you will call, and that Jesus called all people to come to himself, that you have given the Holy Spirit to all who trust in you. In your fullness, you fill us. So we thank you, Lord. We praise you for what you've accomplished out of sorrow, out of suffering and pain, that you are a redeemer and a savior. And I pray, Lord, that we would lay hold of this purpose which you've laid hold of us to glorify you and honor you till you come and for all our days into eternity. Lord, we thank you again for your faithfulness to us and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.